she was saying that one meeting with a young person does more to change your Republican member of Congress's mind on climate than 10 meetings with Democratic staffers. And so that just really encouraged me. You know, we, we want to see members, political leaders, be that courageous voice and support this. Because honestly, what we've been saying from the beginning is it's not a matter of belief, it's a matter of courage. Like, that's what's going to decide this case, is courage. Should I be living for myself right now? Because God knows what I'm going to have. But you have these ideas in your head where it's like, I can't look the next generation in the eye and say that I didn't do everything possible to sustain something for them. So it's like a tiny fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction that needs to be done. And people might say, well, that's better than nothing. And I'm just like, well, it's either you survive or you don't. There's no gray area. It's like, not like we all died. And it's like, well, you know, we were, if you you know, PPMs of carbon under than like, yeah, like, like in, in the afterlife, if that if that's what you believe in, like, well, I mean, we were close. We got close. <laughs> we, got close. <laughs> we almost did. Well, that's, no, it's, yeah. it's black no and white. There's no the almost with the climate crisis. There's no gray area for survival. Youth activists are spearheading a powerful political movement around addressing the climate crisis. For many people, this is a moment of hope and fear. Global carbon emissions continue to increase, but at the same time, demands for climate action are growing louder. Will 2019 be remembered as the year humanity turned a corner in the fight against climate change? Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. I'm hosting this week's podcast solo without my Democrat and Republican co-hosts, Brandon and Shane, so that we can bring you a special interview with a group of leading youth activists in the lead up to the September 20th global climate strike, which will be followed by the United Nations Climate Change Summit. The action really kicked off last month when 16-year-old Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg arrived in New York City after sailing across the Atlantic in an emissions-free yacht. Greta has become the face of the new climate movement, inspiring students across the world to leave school and demand action on climate change. Last Friday, she joined with hundreds of young American environmental advocates to protest on climate in front of the White House. This Friday, September 20th, students and adults in more than 150 countries will take to the streets once more in the first of two coordinated global climate strikes. In New York City, where Greta will speak later this week, the Department of Education announced that the Big Apple's 1.1 million school students will be excused from class to participate in the climate strike on Friday, as long as they get parental consent. If even a fraction of those students show up, this will be a blowout event. While Greta Thunberg has become the face of the youth climate movement, she's hardly the only leader in it. Here in the U.S., young people have been suing states and the federal government for the right to a safe climate for nearly eight years. This podcast recently had the opportunity to sit down with three of the plaintiffs in these cases. Kelsey Juliana, whose name is on the federal case, Juliana versus the United States, as well as Vic Barrett and Jamie Margolin. 
Vic and Jamie are actually testifying this week on Capitol Hill at a joint hearing on the climate crisis. Greta will also be speaking at the hearing, as well as Benji Backer, president of the American Conservation Coalition, a conservative youth climate group who we've actually spoken to on this podcast in the past. I'll turn to my interview with Kelsey, Vic, and Jamie in just a moment. But first, I wanted to find out and share how this week was unfolding behind the scenes for these youth activists on the front lines of these massive, highly publicized protests. So I hopped on a call with Jonah Gottlieb, founder and executive director of the National Children's Campaign, a national organization working to amplify the voices of America's 74 million children and youth. He's also director of Schools for Climate Action, a campaign empowering school boards and student councils to pass nonpartisan resolutions to address the climate crisis, with the ultimate aim of getting Congress to act. Here's what he had to say. Hey, Jonah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So how are you feeling today, Jonah? You are there in Washington, D.C., with a bunch of other youth youth activists. What does it feel like in this moment to have so much attention on this issue? Does it feel good? Does it feel like there's more work to come? What's the, the reigning emotion? I mean, for me, there's obviously this feeling of anticipation for Friday because the strike is just going to be such a momentous thing that happens. We're expecting it to be the largest mass mobilization of people coming together for a single issue in the history of the world. We're expecting millions of youth and adults alike to come out and strike on Friday as we fight for a future with clean air, clean drinking water, and climate justice for every single human being. Obviously, we're, you know, we're tired, we're working, and it also feels, you know, really encouraging that finally this issue is getting so much media attention because for so many of us, we've been working for long before anyone was caring enough to point a camera at us or put a microphone in our faces. Um, I know for me personally, I got started on climate activism in 2017, late 2017 and early 2018, following the fires that devastated my community in Northern California in October of 2017. And ever since then, I've just been working on this issue and trying to make the world a better place. And I know that there are millions of activists just like me around the world um, who have been doing this. So it's so great that now we're getting this issue the attention it deserves. And so hopefully we can finally get some action from our governing bodies. Yeah, I think a lot of people forget that there were a lot of young people and activists working on these issues before Greta Thunberg arrived on the scene. Of course, she has made a huge impact with her Friday school strikes that started last year, but she is one of, of many people working on this. And I know you and some of your friends and colleagues are are among them. But what do you think has really changed in this moment to generate more attention? Is it the way the message is being communicated or is it, um, you know, just a groundswell of people being aware and taking action? What is different about this moment? I think there's a few contributing factors to this. Number one, obviously, Greta is just such a powerful figure and that she's so strong and so committed with every single word that comes out of her mouth. And because of just who she is as a person, when she speaks, people listen. And so she's been able to command that attention 
from the media and from everyone else. And so that this issue has been able to get a lot more attention than it had previously. Unfortunately, another contributing factor is also the severity of the climate crisis and that these natural disasters, um, like the wildfires that affected my community, like these hurricanes, like the polar vortexes, like the melting ice caps and the rising sea levels, all these things are only getting worse. And so people are starting to be forced to pay more attention to this because so many people are being impacted by the climate crisis. And so there really isn't there really isn't an option to not pay attention to this issue and to not care about this issue because it's impacting so many people. So before we hit record, you mentioned you were up until 5 a.m. writing letters to members of Congress. How are you interacting with Congress this week in the lead up to the big September 20th climate strike? And, you know, what have you heard back from them? Yeah, um, so we've found so many members of Congress who have been super supportive of all the work that we've been doing for years. So this week, we're meeting with several members of Congress in both the House and Senate side and talking about our plans for the strike and beyond. We're talking about the strike demands, which are a Green New Deal and a just transition, sustainable agriculture and its implementation, respect for indigenous land and indigenous sovereignty, restoration and protection of biodiversity, and finally, environmental justice for communities particularly black and brown communities who have been disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis, and also giving climate refugees a special status and, and really allowing them to be accepted into countries such as the United States of America, who have been such leading contributors to the climate crisis. And yet it's these refugees from these poorer nations that are doing very little to contribute to the climate crisis, who are right now bearing the most severe effects. And so it's been great working with these members of Congress this week and in the past also, talking to them about the strike. Several members of our youth team will be testifying this week. We'll be speaking at press conferences um, in front of the Capitol and in front of the Supreme Court. And, and that's both in support of the strikes and in support of the Youth VGov lawsuit that's being brought forth by so many of these amazing young activists who are suing the federal government. So we're really excited to be working with all these members of Congress and obviously having such an amazing activist like Greta joining us for this stuff and getting to see so many of these people all together in one place in Washington, D.C. this week because I've been working with them on you know Zoom calls and email exchanges and text messages for months and for years. And now I'm finally, for some of them, meeting them for the first time. So it's really incredible. We're also doing some cool stuff. So, for example, at Schools for Climate Action, our team of mostly high school students um, and some middle and elementary school students authored a resolution about the importance of climate education. And that will be introduced this Thursday, September 19th, by Congresswoman Barbara Lee. And so we're super excited to have that and to really show so many young people around the country that youth can really make a huge difference in our electoral process. And we've proved that by actually writing something that will be introduced and passed by the House of Representatives. Are you finding that you're getting a positive response or at least some kind of response from lawmakers on both sides of the aisle? Or is it really only one party, the Democrats, interacting with you on this? So what I've really found is that every single member of Congress, for the most part, regardless of party, will be super supportive of you until the second you leave their office. 
Um, and that's just because hmm. people don't know how to say no to kids. And so they want to really be interacting with us and be positive and try and put a happy face on this crisis that's going to destroy and is already destroying millions and billions of lives. And so at least privately, when we're with them in their offices, especially on the Republican side, there's been some, you know, positive energy, but it's obviously not led to anything. Although I did find something really interesting um, and actually really encouraging. I was talking to a Democratic aide on the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, and she was saying that one meeting with a young person does more to change a Republican member of Congress's mind on climate than 10 meetings with Democratic staffers. And so that just really encouraged me and, you know, helped us really see that, yes, youth can make a difference and it's going to be a hard battle. It's going to be long and we're not going to win right away, but it is possible and we can do this. Do you mind me asking, how old are you? I'm 17 years old. It's amazing to see how young people like you are taking action and finding their voices in a way that we really haven't seen before. Whether or not someone supports your demands, they really can't ignore them anymore. And that's what your work at the National Children's Campaign is all about, right? Yeah. So in March of this year, uh, Schools for Climate Action, which is the environmental initiative of the National Children's Campaign, held an advocacy summit on Capitol Hill. And over three days, our team of young people and parents and teachers visited all 541 congressional offices. And we saw so much youth energy towards this issue and were so inspired by all these amazing young activists, some of them, you know, younger than 10, who were doing such great work and, you know, actually causing real change. And, but it was really consigned to climate. And then we saw, obviously, with March for Our Lives, a similar thing. We saw this issue of gun violence prevention that was also getting so much energy from young people. And we really wanted to harness that energy and make sure that every single issue that's impacting the children of America is being given the attention it deserves. And so our goals with the National Children's Campaign are, number one, to make sure that elected officials and political candidates are prioritizing the issues that matter to America's 74 million children. So that's issues like the climate crisis, obviously, like gun violence prevention, LGBTQ plus rights, immigration, healthcare, economic security, education, uh, child welfare in the foster system, and so many more issues that play such a huge role in children's lives. And we've really seen that young people don't have a voice in government, and that is just inherently wrong. And so the majority of Americans, regardless of political party, believe that we do have a moral imperative to protect our children and future generations. And yet by the time Election Day rolls around, they forget that because that instinct, that thought in the back of their head, hey, I need to be voting in line with my children's needs, is drowned out by the fossil fuel industry and by big pharma. And by all these other big money groups like the NRA, um, so many other groups that are really putting profits over children's lives. And so we don't have a children's lobby. We don't have some shadowy billionaire that's secretly bribing politicians behind the American public's back 
to help children. And so what we need to do in response to all this um, backroom politics um, that's really only harming America's children is we need a sustained campaign of action from young people and supported by adults. So our second um, main goal with the National Children's Campaign is to make sure that every single adult who says they care about their kids votes like they care about their kids. So whether that's a teacher or a doctor or pediatrician or coach or social worker, you know, anyone who works with kids, anyone who has kids, anyone who's related to a child should be entering the ballot box thinking, I'm going to vote for the person who I think is going to help my child the most. And so right now, that is voting for the person who's going to be most strong on combating the climate crisis. Conversely, we also need that from elected officials themselves. And so we can't have elected officials posing with children in their campaign ads and then voting to destroy our environment or destroy our economy or to make it easier for someone to shoot up a school because that just does not work. You cannot say you care about children if you're going to vote to destroy our lives. And that's what so many people in politics and so many people in America are doing. And so we need to return the power to the American people. And we do that through this sustained campaign of youth activism. And so that's our final pillar at the National Children's Campaign is getting youth involved and getting youth voting and getting youth, getting youth active and make sure that every single young person in America knows who their parents voted for and is instructing them on how they can best serve them. Because if we do that, if we get young people voting and young people engaged in the political process, that's how we win. I guess, finally, what do you say to people who don't think children or youth specifically people that are not of voting age yet, that they should not be so politically involved, that they are ultimately kids and, you know, don't have the best perspective maybe on these issues and thus, you know, don't really have a right to speak up on them. What would you say to someone like that? I say that you may be right. I shouldn't have to be doing this. You know, this, ideally, I would be nowhere near politics at my age because this shouldn't be my job, you know? I've had to force myself to become educated on politics, and so many people in my generation are doing the same because we've learned in our science classes that the world is only getting warmer and that the oceans are only rising and that our political system is broken. And so we've learned that we need this huge wave of youth activism because the adults aren't getting it done. So in a perfect world, I wouldn't be anywhere near politics, but because of the nature of our government and the nature of the corporations that control our lives and control our futures and are destroying our futures in exchange for a few extra dollars, we really need youth activism because that's the only way that this is going to work because the adults have failed us. And so we are educated. We know what we're talking about. And if you believe that we shouldn't be working on the climate issue, then you should get involved yourself. Jonah, good luck with all your meetings this week. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Thank you so much. Have a great day. (music) 
In 2011, long before Greta Thunberg launched the Fridays for Future climate strike, a young woman named Kelsey Juliana launched a lawsuit against the state of Oregon, claiming the state government wasn't doing enough to protect future generations from the impacts of climate change. Flash forward to 2015, and a group of 21 young people from across the United States decided to launch a constitutional lawsuit over their right to a safe and livable future. Kelsey Juliana was one of the first plaintiffs in what would become Juliana versus United States, where she was joined by fellow climate activist Vic Barrett. Years later, Kelsey and Vic, now 23 and 20 respectively, are still waiting for their lawsuits to go to trial. Meanwhile, young environmentalists have also launched a constitutional lawsuit in the state of Washington, home to Governor Jay Inslee, who recently campaigned on a pro-climate action agenda in the Democratic presidential primary, before recently dropping out. 17-year-old Seattle-based activist Jamie Margolin joined that lawsuit last year while continuing to lobby policymakers for climate action and lead major events and public demonstrations through the organization she co-founded called Zero Hour. I interviewed Kelsey, Vic, and Jamie this summer in an Idaho bike shop on the sidelines of the Sun Valley Forum, where youth leaders were hosting their own separate summit on innovative ways to tackle climate change in their local communities. I started by asking Kelsey how she got involved in the Juliana v. United States lawsuit and why she felt compelled to take on the government in the first place. Yeah, so um, I got involved with a group who's helping to support this case and, and many cases like it in the United States and um, similar cases around the world. I got involved with Our Children's Trust back in 2011, and I felt really frustrated that powerful systems that were you know, supposed to represent me and represent my needs and the needs of my generation weren't doing so. And so with their support in 2011, we filed a state case uh, against the local government asking for reduction in carbon emissions and a climate recovery plan. How old were you at that moment? I was 14. Okay. Since then, I uh, took local action in, in the city of Eugene and helping to establish a carbon emissions uh, city ordinance. And, you know, time went on, time went on. The state case was still pending. We had won the city ordinance and I was still fed up with the lack of, of inaction on addressing climate change from political leaders. And this federal case became this idea from the organization and, uh, from the Children's Trust? From our Children's Trust. Our Children's Trust. And I banged on their door and I said, this is happening and I'm I'm joining. And uh, I was able to reach out to other youth who I'd met or um, I'd heard of doing action in their in their own communities and um, got them onboarded. And then... Um, Here you are. Yeah. In a bike over. shop in Sun Valley doing a podcast interview. Naturally where this would <laughs> take you. <laughs> um, I guess what was the motivating factor? What in your heart was like, I'm going to get involved in all this paperwork, pursue a court case. Maybe Vic, you can lead this off. What was the passion driving the action? Yeah, I think that uh, as a youth activist that was doing a lot of work with local politicians in New York City, especially, 
I was feeling that a lot of a lot of youth activists were being ignored um, by people in power, by politicians. We would go into their offices, try to have conversations with them, try to show them policy points, try to give them ideas that we had about our future, and then it would be a photo op afterwards and no follow up. Um, and that was really frustrating, especially feeling all this urgency in my heart about this issue and feeling that there were so many people that were being ignored. And when this lawsuit came up as an opportunity, it was it was finally this answer, this key to like, oh, I can take all the information I've had. I can take all the feelings I've had and actually put it in front of the people who've been ignoring me and actually ask them to be accountable to it and not just ask them, but sue them to be accountable to it, force them to be accountable to it. And that just seemed like an like the necessary opportunity I needed at the moment to feel like this was work that I could keep doing. So where does it stand now, just for the record? Where is the case uh, in, the, in the proceedings? So I know you mentioned a state one and a federal one. Maybe start with the federal one. What's happening there? So right now we're in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Or we just had a hearing in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on June 4th in front of a panel of three judges, uh, which basically deals with an injunction and also an interlocutory appeal. So in uh, Gosh, regular... I can only imagine the terminology, <laughs> in terminology you've had to learn for this. Um, so basically the injunction is uh, something that we filed that says that as long as the case is going on, the U.S. federal government can't keep leasing land and developing new fossil fuel projects uh, and also and the, and the interlocutory appeal is basically just this fancy legal thing that has to do with expediting a decision in order to expedite the ability to get to trial okay so right now you are waiting on the go ahead to get to trial is that mm-hmm. right because the government requested it a petition yeah. to stay from the government so do you have any sense of the timing on that so I <laughs> And hearing a case in front of the Court of Appeals or waiting for that decision after rather can take however long in the state of Oregon, like in our state case, it recently took two years for them to make a decision. Um, And now we just got that decision and now we're going to the Supreme Court of Oregon in November. So that it case is moving forward. It is, but it it can take a long time and it's at their discretion. And we're optimistic, however, that this case, like it has been, you know, in its trajectory in the past four years since 2015, will will move along fast. And so we're anticipating like end of summer, you know. And we've had fall. federal judges that have affirmed the notion that this case should be one that is addressed as quickly as possible because climate change is an issue that is is very time heavy and very based on time. That's what's so interesting about this and why it is so significant. It's not just a protest, not that protests aren't very valuable, but this could change the legal framework and the role of government and how accountable they need to be for their citizens. So just to spell it out, what are the ultimate asks that you are making through the lawsuit? Well, we want a climate recovery plan. Mm -hmm. And this will be court ordered. And it will be for, you know, the legislative executive branches to research to construct and then to implement and the beautiful thing about this ask is it is completely tangible and completely realistic um, and in every uh, responsibility of the government in fact they've already created similar climate recovery emissions reductions plans since the 90s ordered from the epa but of course we're living in this current system of business as usual business as in fossil fuel economy and so those plans have never been implemented. So we want that climate recovery plan. Vic, you want to fill in what else? Uh, yeah, and we frequently get asked, uh, does the court have the have that power? And uh, 
cases that our lawyers take inspiration from and cases that you can look back on in history where you see the court making that sweeping change is looking at Brown versus Board of Education, looking at the gay marriage case. Um, These are examples of the court telling the legislative and executive branches that they need to pass sweeping legislation in order to be in line with the Constitution of the United States. And part of that would also be ending fossil fuel development on public lands. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, when we talk about a climate recovery plan, we're looking at particularly like our um, energy, system. Our, our energy, our transportation, our agriculture systems, like these huge emitters um, that are really a matter of choices. Like we've created these systems based on choices of greed and efficiency, you know, efficiency in the wrong terms to to put us in this destabilized state. And so we can make the choices to you know, find alternatives in those in those sectors of society. And then, I mean, we're also asking for a paradigm shift because we're we also want the atmosphere to be um, protected for this and future generations under uh, ancient doctrine called the public trust doctrine. Great. So, Jamie, I want to bring you in here. I know you also have a lawsuit in the state of Washington. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So um, I'm uh, and 12 other young people are suing the state of Washington over very similar grounds to the federal case. So a lot of times, you know, with the federal government, it's a lot harder to implement change. So while the federal lawsuit is going on, there also has to be local fights for change. And and especially because the climate recovery plan is not a one size fits all. And every state has to have like its own climate recovery plan on top of the federal one, because like the Pacific Northwest, where I live, has its own needs. And so initially, actually, the Washington state lawsuit started out as an extension of a hand of friendship to the government. It was not a ha, we're going to sue you off the bat. At first, it was, oh, oh, hey, um, the, the youth brought to the Washington State Department of Ecology that they wanted a climate recovery plan, that they wanted a Clean Air Act. And the Department of Ecology was like, that's not our job, even though they're the Department of Ecology. And I'm not going to take you to the legal mumbo jumbo of back and forth and back and forth. But pretty much to sum it all up, there's a back and forth. The kids were like, can we work with you on this? The government was like, nah. Um, and then the government was like, fine. And they, they implemented like the tiniest, most useless Clean Air Act to give you a sense of how not enough it is. And this was like as of a few years ago, so I'm sure it has to be even more aggressive now. But as of two years ago, in order to get down to the 350 parts per million in the atmosphere that we need in order to have a livable future, um, we would have had to reduce the emissions in Washington state by 10 percent each year. The current clean air plan reduces them by 1 percent each year, but only regulates 19 corporations instead of all emissions. So it's like a tiny fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction that needs to be done. And people might say, well, that's better than nothing. And I'm just like, well, it's either you survive or you don't. There's no gray area. It's like, not like we all died. And it's like, well, you know, we were a few, you know, PPMs of carbon under than like, <laughs> yeah, like, like in, in the afterlife, if that if that's what you believe in, like, well, I mean, we were close. We got close. We We almost did. Well, no, it's it's black and white. There's no almost with the climate crisis. There's no gray area for survival. So pretty much um, the government, um, it had this like tiny, like almost like a pity, like here's a little thing that they're bragging about, by the way, like we made some great sweeping legislation. It's like, okay. And after that, eventually, when we saw that there wasn't going to actually be a way to fight that properly, um, and this is when I joined on the lawsuit, I wasn't in the initial extent hand of friendship. I joined in when it was a constitutional case. And so then they gathered a bunch of more young people. So they gathered me, some indigenous kids from around the state, and all these other plaintiffs to sue the Washington state government over denying our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is under federal law, but also 
the Washington State Constitution has a public trust doctrine, which says that the natural resources needed to survive needed to be protected for posterity and future generations. And like right now, there's new fossil fuel infrastructure being built in Washington state. We have the Kalama methanol refinery. We have the liquid natural gas terminal, in P- uh, which is being built in Tacoma and Puyallup land against their consent, um, even though that's probably against treaty. It's definitely against treaty laws. So then there's a the whole like racism component of that. So there's just so much wrong in this state that we're suing them. And where we're at in the lawsuit right now is that the government is tried to shut us down so now we're appealing to like say like like they gave us a ruling that was just like this isn't valid goodbye and so now we're trying to like poking at them again and and we're not going to like give up though they it wasn't dismissed dismissed but it was just like not a good ruling even though um Initially, all the rulings have been in our favor, but it hasn't led to actual policy because we want a climate recovery. We're also suing for a climate recovery plan for Washington State. So right now the lawyers are regathering, regrouping. And yeah. Wow. Okay. So I guess one question I have is, is how seriously do you feel like you're being taken? Or at least when you launched these as well, when you were even younger than you are now, uh, did people take you seriously? You weren't voters at the time. So what was it like getting your voice to be heard? And how did you find the momentum that you needed to work these cases forward? We were Kelsey? not taken seriously. No, for <laughs> sure, no. Yeah. We had to definitely start winning to be taken seriously, uh, for sure. Also, I think a moment where we realized that we had a really strong case was honestly for the first year to how long for the the first 19 months of the lawsuit, the in the for the first 19 months of the lawsuit, the fossil fuel industry. Um, the, the when we say that we mean 300 of the biggest fossil fuel corporations in the world were filed an intervening motion. So we're co-defendants with the U.S. federal government on our case. Um, And then once we, you know, (laughs) kept doing well and they realized that they were going to have to provide discovery, all of a sudden they were like, you know what? We're good. <laughs> we're, we're good. Can we'll we let leave? you guys get the, we'll let <laughs> yeah, you guys Yeah, they pulled out, right? The fossil yeah. companies no longer they are left, part of it. Because they realized that our case is kind of bulletproof. <laughs> um, and Why so, is that? Describe the, you know, the, the argument behind it. Mm-hmm. We have 21 experts on our side of the case, uh, many of whom have won Nobel Prizes, many of whom are the leaders of their fields when it comes to talking about climate change. We have experts that deal with child development, experts that deal with child psychology, uh, experts that have been experts on other Supreme Court cases, (laughs) um, scientists, everybody who's really supporting this case. And we have thousands and thousands and thousands of documents of evidence that prove that the U.S. federal government has been very conscious and very aware of the fact that our fossil fuel energy system would contribute to climate change. And we have documents saying that they've known this going all the way back five administrations, maybe back to the 60s. Because um, this is not about one party or the other, right? Mm-hmm. And I think of Washington State, where Jay Inslee's from, and it's like, oh wait, this is where yeah, a lawsuit's happening. He's a supposedly climate guy, and like, th- it's a complicated relationship right now with Jay Inslee because, um, because he's pushing the other candidates to talk about climate change more. He's pushing. He's like, hey, climate, 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 and it's like the mainstream media is hearing about it more, which is good. But back home, when you're when the news cameras are off and it's back home living with the policies in my home, it's just like, well, the the, the oceans are still dying. You know, where I live, there's supposed to be tons of orcas and porpoises, and I've never seen any of those things in my life. So it, we're still living with that. And it's not just about the whales. It's, it's also about the people that are living in, like, you know, South Seattle and other, like, areas where 
they're really feeling the worst effects of the climate crisis, especially the indigenous communities that are going to have to put up with the uh, liquid natural gas facility right in there. Like it's just it's another example of environmental racism. So yeah. it's it's really difficult, and people tend to see the climate crisis as black and white. I think most politicians want a cookie for just saying that they believe in the climate crisis, and at this point, it's like you don't get a cookie for that anymore. I'm curious what you guys think, you know, Kelsey and Vic, I guess, Kelsey, I'll ask you first. Um, so you are voting age now. What do you want to see from your politicians outside the court cases? Are you heartened by the fact that the Democratic candidates have come out in support of the Green New Deal? Uh, what would you like to see them do in addition? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, definitely coming out in support of the Green New Deal, coming out in support of this, of this lawsuit. I mean, we just launched our campaign, Congress for Juliana. You know, we, we want to see members political leaders be that courageous voice and support this because honestly what we've been saying from the beginning is it's not a matter of belief it's a matter of courage like that's what's gonna decide this case is courage that is what's gonna decide this case and we're waiting for that brave judge you know we've waited for the brave judges in 2011 when we filed cases in all in all 50 states I'm still waiting for that judge in, in Oregon Jamie's waiting for that judge. like we're waiting for that brave judge and that call for courage. And so, you know, even my the representatives in, in my uh, very blue state of Oregon, like I, I literally met with them in D.C. and said, you need to support the Green New Deal and not call it some wishy-washy, you know, idealistic pipe dream. Because we don't think that and we're the ones constructing that that dream and we're the ones who are who are going to live out the reality. And so therefore, you know, like you t- take you take us seriously. Like this is the life that we're inheriting and we're trying to direct it now that you put us into this unstable pot. So take us seriously. And so and they have changed like those representatives have, have changed. And so what I want to see is I want to see representatives show courage and 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 show courage in the face of, you know, the crisis, not in the face of what is popular or, you know, what they believe their voters want to see. But what they understand is as as important. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like what we have seen a shift in is this will affect future generations to, I think, largely led by you guys, shifting that narrative to know we are that generation. It's happening now. It's not some distant person that you haven't met yet. And I think, Jamie, you you mentioned on stage that you know we have 12 years to mobilize on the climate crisis. And you're like, right. one year's already gone by. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the 12 year year came out like a year. I think it almost came out two years ago. So now it's 10 years. Um, so now it's 10 years like in it's, it's in a couple of months it's going to be 10 years and i swear it's going to take two years for them to figure out that it's 10 years now and not 12 years um math is hard math is hard um, when you want it to be <laughs> when you want it to be um they can calculate the numbers of how many square miles of trees they can cut down but when it's like simple math of like how many years we have left they're like eh. um <laughs> tell us the story of uh the the car analogy ah uh, yes the car analogy so a lot of people I talk to, there's kind of like this um, feeling of nihilism that is very present amongst people who do really understand the full extent of the climate crisis, where they're just like, there's literally no point. Everything is coming to an end. That's it. We're dead. Like, lay down. Let's enjoy the ride. Everyone get out all of the drugs and just have a wonderful time. Um, you know, just <laughs> all like, the drugs. Okay. <laughs> um, every drug. And the, the, you know what I mean? I just you. like, enjoy it down, party it up, because this is the end of the world, so we might as well have fun. That logic doesn't make sense to me because think of it this way. So right now the climate crisis is like being in a car. Humanity is in this car and we're racing towards a collision. If we were further back in the road, like um, back in the 80s or the 70s and we had 
slammed on the brakes back then, then we would have been able to stop the car in time to avoid the collision. But right now we're so far along the road that the collision is like two feet away from us and there is no way, it's just impossible to not crash. You're gonna crash. You have two options. You slam the brakes as hard as you can or you slam the gas pedal as hard as you can. By slamming the gas pedal, you're making it as hard, you know, you're just crashing as hard as possible, causing the most damage possible, causing the most death physically possible, and then just the worst explosion. Or you could slam the brakes and you know you're gonna crash, but it's gonna be like the least collision possible, the least damage, do the best with what you have. That's what the climate movement is doing. We're slamming the brakes because we don't think that we should step on the gas pedal into our own demise. We should slam the brakes and minimize it as much as possible. Vic, to you, can you talk a little bit more about the emotional journey that goes along with this work? What is it like to do this day in, day out as you've been students and obviously you have friends and want to do fun things with your life as well? So what's that journey like? Yeah, it's definitely an interesting journey that as I'm getting older, I also wonder like how qualified I am even to be able to speak on it because I've been doing this since I was 14. It's like, what do I compare it to that might be (laughs) the emotional journey without it? You know what I mean? But um, it's like, it's it's really hard. It's really difficult because we've been doing this since we were so, I've been doing this since I was 14. I've been doing this since the midst of we're all in the midst of our development and the midst of becoming what comes next in our lives the midst of trying to develop fully as people and as we're trying to develop fully as people we're also trying to make sure that the world can develop to even hold us when we're there and it's this constant emotional weight of trying to balance like wow should i just be kind of what jamie's saying right now like in the individual sense like should i be living for myself right now because god knows what i'm going to have but you have these ideas in your head where it's like, I can't look the next generation in the eye and say that I didn't do everything possible to sustain something for them. And so it's definitely a lot of constant pressure. It's definitely a lot of constant pressure. And sometimes the pressure could be motivating and really move you forward. And sometimes the pressure could be like extremely paralyzing. And I think that a lot of young people are having to find and learn how to explore that balance in ways that we didn't have to before when we, when young people could just be young people. <laughs> You feel like there's no option now to to just not care. Is that right? Like when you say young people could just be young people, that moment's passed. Yeah. That's interesting. Last question for you, Jamie, was, you know, you mentioned do everything you possibly can. And a big debate happening there is individual versus system-wide action. And I know you have some thoughts on that. Could you share that that point of view? Yeah. So my pet peeve is when people... um, for example, with plastic pollution, they ignore the commercial fishing industry, which is contributing to 46% of all plastic pollution, but they'll focus on a shaming a person with a disability who needs to use a straw to like drink on like, don't use that straw. And it's like, actually, that's like 0.00. I don't know how many 0.1% of plastic pollution. And what it does is it it's kind of like a rape culture. Like we, our society is a rape culture in the sense that it's victim blaming in every way possible. Um, it's victim blaming, um, like, for example, when assault happens on, like, women and stuff, but it's also victim blaming when studies have shown that the climate crisis is caused mainly, like, 70, more than 70% by 100 corporations alone. And those corporations' decision makers are a few top decision makers. So a few top decision makers of a few large corporations are causing the vast majority of the destruction. And instead of focusing our public outrage to tackling that and to tackling those issues, we're focusing it on harassing individuals 
to remain within this oppressive system that is holding people down and has not been working because the climate crisis is really the grand culmination of all our societal systems of oppression that have been building up for centuries and it's just kind of like the big this isn't working like big red light like it's kind of like all our evils combined into one giant ugly monster um, which is the climate crisis and it's really it's really frustrating like there's also a lot of ableism going on and there's a lot of like when Zero Hour hosted our Youth Climate Summit in Miami, we went to eat at a local Haitian business in Little Haiti. And there was, I heard some people in the back of the line because they were serving in styrofoam with plastic, like, of like, oh my God, these people are the problem. And it's like, no, small black owned businesses are not the problem. It's these massive corporations. And so we're shaming people. Little Haiti is very much vulnerable to Little Haiti and Haiti, the country as well, very vulnerable to the effects of the climate crisis. The people there are very vulnerable to all sorts of systems of oppression, racism, there's horrible redlining, there's a climate gentrification happening in Miami, and we're going to shame them because they used a plastic fork once? Like, that's just ridiculous, and that's not going to get us where we need to go. So final question to you, Kelsey, what, what needs to happen now? Like, what is what are actionable items that you can take away from this work? I know the court cases are you know slowly moving forward, et cetera, but what are you taking away from even this conference where we are in terms of actionable items? What I was really inspired by at the Sun Valley Conference is the young people in the Youth Forum who were recognizing, okay, so like we're talking about these larger issues and we're talking about climate change as this umbrella problem crisis, but what can we do about it? Well what do I know? And like, what can, can I do? Kind of taking it more personally. And the solutions that they found that they had access to and that they actually like, what was, what is the word that I'm thinking of? Have tangible, tangibly actualized, actual, actualized. That's what I wanted. Yeah. But the solutions that they've, that, that have culminated, but have also actualized at this event have all been around their own localized issues and their own localized access to building those solutions yeah they came up with things like i think an app for car sharing to yeah. school things like collecting pollution and then making an art project out of it things like that just even the idea of like you know closing the circle um and we live in a closed system so like having a closed system within our micro communities and our microsystems, you know that's so important to just even have that framework of how do we live in a a society that has been flawed for a long time but we're trying to change that and we're very young how do we do that and so I've been really impressed and really inspired by just the young people who are looking at their schools uh you know their their distance and the commute to school yeah. you know and what that looks like in their community and who are creating solutions that work for them and I think that you know fundamentally that's how we're all gonna actually realize climate justice you're talking about a global long-term problem but scale it down mm -hmm. and then you can scale back up it's a little more bite-sized perhaps when it's in your community your commute you start there and then build up i guess the final thing is i know you have an event coming up so can you quickly talk about that yeah so um september 20th is the global climate strikes and so um Zero Hour is partnering with a bunch of local D.C. organizations to organize the D.C. climate strikes. And you can join Zero Hour if you go to just at This Is Zero Hour on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. But that's what's coming up. Great. Lots of things happening. You guys are very busy, and I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to us amidst your busy schedules. So thanks so much. Thank, yeah, you. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our show for this week. We hope it was interesting and informative. We'll be back again soon with Brandon and Shane. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to Political Climate if you haven't done so yet. 
simply find us on your favorite podcasting platform. We're on pretty much all of them. Thank you to Victoria Simon for helping produce this show. She and I will be in New York covering the UN Climate Summit next week, so look for updates on that in an upcoming episode. But for now, so long.